0: Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm fourteen. This is a psalm that David, the Lord's anointed, composed. It is a psalm that God wanted us to sing. We needed to hear these words. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plains of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad thus far from Psalm 14. please turn now in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse one. this too. Is by God's inspiration of his spirit through the Apostle Paul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you have been saved. Thus far the reading of God's Word for this day. Let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Almighty God, our Father, we do come to you today hearing these hard words, and yet words that need to be heard. We pray that you would use them like the blades of a plow in the ground, that you would plow our hearts and that the seed of your word might be planted deep, seeds of grace, that we might wonder and behold at your mercy to us. Come now by your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to unplug our ears that we might hear Christ speaking through all the noise of this world that we might hear Him. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Three years and one month ago tomorrow is a day that Nancy and I will never forget. One of the worst days of our lives. Today is Valentine's Day and I remembered to have a card for her this morning. But three years And one month ago tomorrow, I didn't know that I would be able to have a card for her today. I was running an errand out of town. Nancy had a sinus infection and so arranged to see her doctor and get some medicine, which she did. And as she was getting ready to leave, she commented to the doctor about this strange bruise on her leg that had been not healing at all, and she'd had it for several weeks. And so the doctor said, well, I'll take a blood test and find out what's going on, and gave Nancy her prescription. Nancy went to the pharmacy, got home. As soon as she got home, the doctor herself was on the phone telling her that she needed to find someone to take her to the hospital, that she was not well enough to drive herself. She could have a stroke at any moment that it appeared she had a very severe form of leukemia. It was a horrible day. It shook our lives to the core of our being. I didn't realize how much it had shaken mine until I recently discovered that we had that I had never recorded the baptism of Constance Wilson anywhere. I didn't know when she had been baptized. I knew I did it. But I'm a detail-oriented person. I don't miss things like that. And so I had Katie go through the bulletins for three months following Constance's birth discovered that I baptized her three years and one month ago today, the day before that horrible day. And that day just displaced. Any thoughts of that baptism? It was a very bad day. But there is a sense in which it was a good day. Because if we had not discovered Nancy's true condition that day, she would have been dead within a few days. Her blood was like sludge. She could have had a stroke. The doctor didn't even want her to drive herself. You don't appreciate the wonder of a cure until you understand how deadly was the disease. And this is what the Apostle Paul is addressing at a spiritual level in our text here in Ephesians today. Out of his care for the church, he had written to them. He had given them greetings and then had lifted their eyes to heaven with a long 11 verse peon of praise to the Lord for every spiritual blessing that we have received in Christ. And then he went on to pray for the people to whom he was writing. Praying that they would know the the hope of god's calling the the riches of god's inheritance and the immeasurably great power of God for those who believe the very power which God had used to raise Christ from the dead and then seated Christ at his right hand above every power over all creation. All authority belonged to him. He was made head for the sake of the church. And now Paul goes on. He segues into the rest of his letter. And as he does, he, having lifted their eyes to heaven and to the glories of God, he immediately confronts them with how desperate, How absolutely desperate was their plight. The plight of anyone who lives a life apart from God. Apart from Christ. You see, the wonder of God's grace cannot be appreciated. Apart from a clear understanding... An honest recognition of your real condition before God apart from Christ. One that may not be immediately evident. All we thought was that Nancy had a sinus infection. But in the spiritual realm, one that may be eternally consequential. It is eternally consequential. It is absolutely important that you see the true condition of your soul, of your life, apart from Christ. It's important that you recognize the specific characteristics of your life apart from Christ. that you know the awful consequence for your life lived apart from Christ so that you may properly treasure what Christ offers by His grace. Paul immediately confronts us with the true condition of life apart from Christ in verse 1 of chapter 2 he says, And you... And it's an emphatic you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. It's interesting here. Verse 1 begins another long, appalling sentence that in our Bibles takes up the first seven verses of chapter 2. He begins with and. And. To show that it does follow upon what he's immediately spoken of. And then he gives this emphatic you. And yet what is interesting is that this you is not the subject of the sentence. It is the object of the sentence. And in fact the verb of which it is an object doesn't occur until the fifth verse way, 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 way down the length of that sentence. In verse 5, made alive together. God made alive together you. Now, why does he do that? Why does he put the subject so far at the end Of the sentence and put us the object at the very beginning of the sentence, it's because he wants us to understand the significance of the fact that God made you, us, alive together with Christ. By focusing on how bad our true condition really was only in that way would we appreciate the wonder of God's grace that He would make us alive. If you don't understand your true condition, you won't appreciate the cure. Indeed, you won't even seek the cure if you don't understand your condition. If Nancy hadn't had that blood test, we wouldn't have known that she needed to immediately be taken to the emergency room. We only knew because we were made aware of the true condition of the health of her body. How much more do people need to understand the true condition of your life apart from Christ? There are three common views of the human condition. The first is that humankind is basically good and that the troubles we experience are because of either ignorance on our part or a bad environment in which we live. And so the answer just needs to be education and knowledge and and maybe a little bit of uh, social support in our environment to make it easier to live. That's pretty much what the world at large views. The second is that humankind is ill. That sin is a sickness and it has us dragging. And so the answer is we need some medicine, some grace medicine, that if we take it and if we if we use it and if we... Uh, Take proper care of ourselves that we we can be healthy again. And that's what much of the Christian world thinks that sin is a sickness that has made us ill. But that's not what Paul thinks. Paul says, and you were dead. You were dead. You're dead spiritually now, physically later. For which the only answer is a resurrection. If you ever had a pet that got hit by a car and it's lying dead in the street, pouring some medicine in its mouth isn't going to help. Giving it an x-ray is not going to help. The only thing that could make a difference is if somehow that animal was raised and made alive again. And we grieve for those pets. But we don't see that the people around us, we don't sometimes see that ourselves are the living dead. We thought zombies were just a horror movie. The living dead, that's what we are apart from Christ. We're dead. Paul later in his letter speaks in Ephesians 4 verse 18. He describes this. He says um, that... uh, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Because of their sin, they don't even look for God, but they're alienated from God. That's what it means that we're dead. We're spiritually dead. This isn't just Paul's idea. Jesus in Matthew 8.22, speaking of people who would not follow after him. Someone had come up and talked about following him. And in Matthew 8, 22, verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and, go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now he's using the word dead there in two different ways. Bury their own dead is those who are actually physically But he says, let the dead bury their dead. Now, how can the dead bury their dead if they're dead? Well, they're not dead physically, but they are dead spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying. And in John 5, 24, when he's talking about what difference does it make to have faith after you've not believed. We read in Jesus saying in 5. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Going from unbelief to faith is going from death to life. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death. You remember, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can... Destroy your body who can kill you. Be afraid of him who can put, destroy your body and soul in hell. He's talking about spiritual death here. And he describes it as being dead in trespasses and sins. Two words that are used for sin that have a slight uh, different orientation. Trespass is a deviation uh, from the path, a, a falling away. It's the breaking of the commandments. The word sin is a word that speaks of failure, of missing the mark, of not living up to what one should be. So you might say that it's speaking of sins of commission and sins of omission. But together they just are one package showing how bad sin is and that sin brings death Paul in another place says the wages of sin is death in Romans 5 verse 12 the apostle paul says just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We sometimes call this original sin, not meaning the first sin, but the fact that every one of us is affected by that first sin of Adam, that we all are spiritually dead, that we are born spiritually dead. People don't like to hear that. What do you mean? I'm pretty good. I've not killed anyone. I even pay all my taxes. That should get me some credit. But the Bible teaches that we're dead. Dead. In our trespasses and sins. We don't think of ourselves as dead. But this, apart from Christ, this is what every one of us is. And you still are if you don't believe Jesus. You need to understand the truth about your condition. I need to understand the truth of mine. Apart from Christ, we are dead. Dead before God spiritually. And one day we will be dead before him eternally if a cure is not provided. We need to understand the true condition of our life before, apart from Christ. We also need to recognize the specific characteristics of our deadness living apart from Christ. He goes on in verse 2 in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind here's he's describing what it means what to look for how do we know we're dead well He says, first of all, that we are in bondage to the world in which you once walked following the course of this world. One commentator put it this way, helping us to understand what the course of this world is referring to. Sins were more than occasional acts they were the medium the atmosphere of their ordinary life the world here is not talking about the ground beneath our feet it's talking about people and culture living apart from god it's it's like the air we breathe the the ideas that we think that's the world and ideas apart from God, thinking of living apart from God is like ble- breathing polluted air. Living next to a smokestack, just spewing forth dangerous chemicals. We're in, and we we don't know it. We don't realize The world and the ideas that are going around, where it's just all around us. Bondage to the world, and, and we don't recognize it because we grow up in this world, and these are the things we hear. This is what we're taught, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so we're in bondage to these things. This is how you once walked, following the course of the world. You do what other people do because that's what people do. That's how we live. It's so easy to do that. One of our members had... um, Had no real connection with the Christian faith. And when they came to our church and visited, and I gave them a little pamphlet about getting to know their Bible, and they started reading the Bible. And they had 30 days of readings. And day five, six, and seven were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And they came to me the following week after having read those verses. And they were horrified because they were doing all sorts of things that Jesus spoke against in the Sermon on the Mount. They just never thought about it. They never knew. They were wondering, was there any hope? I was glad to be able to tell them, yes. Yes, there is hope. But they were pretty desperate that day. We all ought to be desperate and not just cruise along With the ways of the world. But it's not just that we're in bondage to the world. Paul's making clear. We are in bondage to the devil. He says. In which you once walked. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work. In the sons of disobedience. Who is this prince. Of the power of the air. Well it's. He's talking here about the devil and the authority that God had permitted him. And later on in chapter 6, verse... Eleven, He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, the prince of the power of the air. There are spiritual forces, personal spiritual forces. Just as the devil tempted Adam and Eve in order to destroy God's plan for creation, now the devil is seeking to distract us. A personal evil. In 2 Corinthians four, 4 the Apostle Paul actually refers to this person as The God of this world. In their case the God of this world. Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. In. John 12 verse 31. And again. In John 16 verse 11. He speaks of the ruler of this world. And indeed in. Colossians 1 verse 13 Paul speaking of this world under the dominion of the devil refers to it as the domain of darkness he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son there is a real devil that has power to deceive, to destroy. That is his intent. It speaks the prince of the power of the air. Well, in in those days, it was believed that in uh, you had heaven, which was where God was at. And then you had the air under heaven, the skies. And that... That area was filled with spiritual powers and Paul is making use of that and he refers to the devil, the prince of the power of the air. The air that we breathe, the the, the cultural world around us, the world of ideas. He's the prince of those powers and he's an active power. He says... That he's not only the prince of the power of the air, but he's the prince of the spirit that is now at work. In the sons of disobedience. Now that phrase sons of disobedience is what they call a Hebraism. It's it's a, a linguistic phrase that is adopted from the Hebrew language and carried over. So... Sons of disobedience is a phrase meaning that these are characteristics. Sons is just referring to people in general. But sons of disobedience is referring to people who are disobedient. And so in the next um, verse it speaks of... Children of wrath, again, a Hebraism referring to children who are characterized by being recipients of wrath, which we'll address in a moment. But for now, the devil is at work in the sons of disobedient. He's working not only to make us disobedient, but to push our disobedience, to aggravate our disobedience. He delights in destroying. Some of you may have heard the recent news report about Robbie Zacharias. A man who had a tremendous ministry of apologetics, giving answers to the faith. And yet there was a dark side to his life. The devil is at work. He was disobedient. Only God knows His final heart when he died, but the devil is goading us. He's goading you to disobedience. That's a characteristic of what it means to live apart from Christ, to disobey the Lord, to follow your own way, to just go with the flow, to go contrary to God. It's not just bondage to this devil. That is pushing and alluring. But it's also. Bondage. To the flesh. He says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here now Paul is making clear. This isn't just the problem of the Ephesians to whom he was writing. This is a problem we all struggle with. We are all in bondage to our own desires. Some of you will remember John's words in his first letter warning the people where he says in John, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life that's what he's talking about these desires we are in bondage to them and apart from Christ we just go along with whatever our desires tell us we want we pursue them regardless of the consequences regardless of the consequences. But but this is what people are, apart from Christ. They're in bondage to their flesh, to their own desires, to, to both the desires, physical desires of their body, the, the desires of their minds. We're in bondage to a real personal devil who is seeking to destroy what God has made. We're in bondage to the world in which we live, the world in antagonism against God, the world that just encourages us to pursue our own dreams, totally with apart from any thought of God. We need to recognize the characteristics of just how bad off we were. Just like this couple coming to me and saying, Is there any hope for us? We never knew. We never knew. We just went along. But that's not all. It's even worse. There's not just our true condition and the specific characteristics, but there is the awful consequence of life apart from Christ. We read at the end of verse 3, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, that phrase, children of wrath, is a reference not to babies. It's just a reference to people in general. You're either a son or a child of whatever Characterizes you. And so he's referring to the fact that we are people who faced wrath. That is the wrath of God. There's a sense that in these three verses, Paul is summarizing in the most concise way possible the three chapters of Romans 1, 2, and 3. And you'll remember that in chapter 1, verse 18, it begins, the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind because of their sinfulness. And then he goes on to say that whether you're a Jew with the law or you're a Gentile without the law, God's wrath is on you because you are all guilty. And in John 3... John warns, having just a few paragraphs earlier said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse 33, he says, whoever receives his test, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And see, this is where disobedience and unbelief really are just different sides of the same coin. If you, if you disobey, it's because you don't believe. If you believe, you obey. But the wrath of God remains on the one who does not believe. Are places where Jesus speaks of those who are cast into the outer darkness with constant wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the fire never is put out, where the worm never stops digesting you. Words that are meant to create just an image of what is even worse in terms of experiencing God's hatred against sin. Paul has just mentioned the wonders of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ. He has just prayed that that they may know the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints and the power, the immeasurable power for us who believe. And he wants now to go on with that theme of power, but we won't understand the power of God in our lives if we don't first understand how wretched we are and helpless and how desperate we are apart from the power of God. It is to this kind of people who are rebellious against God, who are under God's wrath, who are dead, that God makes alive in Christ. And next time we will explore the wonders of that grace. But before we can appreciate that grace, We need to see and understand and feel just how desperate each of us is. It doesn't matter if you're a child who grew up in a Christian home and you've believed as as much as you can remember it was true of you that you were under God's wrath until by God's grace through your parents. You were led to faith. Every one of us, living apart from Christ, have a horrible condition that right now is not physically manifested, but will one day not only be physically manifested, but then will be eternally manifested unless God intervenes. And that, friends, is the hope that God has intervened, that He has sent His Son to make us alive. And what a wonderful thing it is that God loved sinners like you and like me. And we want to explore the wonders of that grace as Paul lays it out more fully next time. But in the meantime, we need to reckon with the truth of our condition and the awful consequence that we face by living in rebellion against God apart from the only hope there is in Jesus Christ. If you've never put your trust in Christ, friend, that grace is available to you today. Today. If you believe in Him, God's wrath will not rest on you. If you believe in Him, God will give you life, real life. He will take away slowly, sometimes quickly, different characteristics of rebellion. But it's only in Christ. Put your trust in Him. For those of you that have put your trust in Christ, have you forgotten from whence you have come? Have you forgotten what faced your life apart from Christ? Have you begun to take Him for granted? Is your life beginning to look more like the devil than like Jesus? We too need to remember and take note that we might be reminded of the wonder Reality, the power of God's grace, and how precious it is to those who truly believe. Let's pray. God, thank you that you knew us when we were dead in trespasses. Which we walk according to this world, according to the prince, of the power of the air, one actively working against us, in which we just followed our own desires selfishly without thought to others, without thought to ourselves, offending you and under your judgment. Lord, thank you that Paul took the Ephesians back to the beginning before he could build them up in the glories of Christ's grace. Help us To go back, but don't leave us there. Open our eyes, open our hearts, to receive the wonders of your grace and mercy in Jesus. We need. We pray in His name. Our hymn of